listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast, where we discuss all things related to continuous improvement. And now to your host, Jesse Marka. Welcome back to another episode of Hooked on Learning. In today's episode, we're going to cover Chapter 2 of the IFSTA Manual for Company Officer 1 and 2. And the real goal of Lesson Number 2 is that we're able to describe the organizational structure of a variety of fire and emergency services um, by the end of this lesson. So the first lesson really has to do with how fire departments are organized and the basic principles of an organizational structure. So for this one, I reached back in the archives and grabbed one of the articles out of the newsletter titled Fully Mission Capable. You know, and this article is from January 2016, and essentially it was there to provide a context and a historical perspective as to why we use the command structure that we use as a fire department. So the article goes like this, at least the beginning of the article. Have you ever heard the fire service referred to as a paramilitary organization? Okay, I'm sure you've heard it before, but what does that mean? Following the conclusion of the American Civil War, municipalities began replacing independent hose companies with municipal fire departments. Seeing the need for a command and control process, critical decision-making, and organizational structure of the fire service adopted a paramilitary structure that was based on the Civil War deployment model. Our paramilitary structure is intended to facilitate our mission. The Department of Defense categorizes military assets as fully mission-capable and non-mission-capable. The formal definition of fully mission-capable relates to the material condition of any piece of equipment, aircraft, or training device, indicating that it can perform all of its missions. Informally, it is also used to categorize the readiness of personnel. So, why is this so important? Given the military roots of our organizational structure, it's important to discuss what goes into making our organization fully mission-capable. And a big part of that is our mission statement and our actual structure. So the structure that we use at the fire department is referred to as a scalar structure. And a scalar structure uh, is characterized by uh, having an uninterrupted series of steps or, as we refer to it, a chain of command. So this is the most common um, form of structure to fire and emergency services, and decisions and informations are directed from the top through intermediate levels to the base of the structure. And then feedback and information is transmitted up from the bottom through uh, the structure to the top. So I believe there are um, some advantages of this, and some of those advantages are direct communication at lower levels means quicker actions and reactions, and some decision-making authority can be delegated down to lower levels, uh, that's based on the, the book's information. It can enhance communication when done appropriately, and the information is centralized for decision-making. So on scenes, this structure really does make sense. But I think a common pitfall of leaders and, and supervisors, especially new leaders and supervisors, is to use the scalar structure as a form of or a source of leadership and I think that's where we get into problems as uh, professionals and supervisors. This is not designed to be a guide to leadership. Um, so as you move up in the organization, so to speak, uh, you're really taking on more responsibility, not less. 
And it's, it's similar to the concept of building a pyramid. So with this, with this traditional scalar structure, the chief, theoretically the strongest part of the organization, is placed at top. Yet if, if we were building a pyramid, where would we put our strongest blocks? We'd put our strongest blocks on the bottom. So I think it's important to think of that in that regard in terms of leadership and, again, this concept of servant leadership, which we will get into, I promise. I know everybody's very, very eager to hear more about servant leadership. So uh, with that being said, if you, think of, if you think of our structure at the station as a pyramid and that we're going to build the strongest blocks first because those blocks need to be strong enough to support the rest of the organization and and to carry the mission and the message of the entire organization. Uh, therefore, they need to be very strong, very developed. There are other ways of uh, breaking down an organizational structure, and, and that can be done um, in a variety of ways. One way is through the line and staff functions. And, you know, this model is, is not as common it's, it's basically just a different way of showing uh, what we already do. And in our, our structure at our fire department, and structure similar to a fire department such as a Metro Airport, is that we look pretty common when you put us down on paper. And that is we have a, a chief, and then we can break that down into a couple of different divisions. What, you know, For example, operations and administration. And under operations, you would see three shifts outlined and on those three shifts, you'd have battalion chiefs, captains, lieutenants, and firefighters. And then when you went over across um, to the other side of the uh, organizational chart, you would see the administrative division, uh, which would obviously have the uh, have positions like fire prevention and training embedded within that. So um, as we as we continue on. It, it's important to understand the delegation of authority as um, to how that relates to decision-making. So a couple of definitions here. Authority is the legal ability of an individual to make, implement decisions, um, and to ultimately which an individual is held accountable. So that is authority. Now, the company officer has changing decision-making roles throughout the incident. And that is mostly because the company officer is operating in a few different areas. One is the task level. So if we think about throwing a ground ladder uh, as an initial arriving or second arriving crew, you and your partner uh, may be throwing some, maybe doing something simple like throwing a ground ladder. But as we escalate into a tactical role, uh, a tactical role would best be summarized by being a being in charge of a division, so second floor, third floor, basement, and so on. So now on the second floor, you might be uh, leading, you know, rescue one, rescue two, and then yourself as the officer from engine one, and you'd be responsible for a group of people on the tactical level, therefore meaning you are a tactical level supervisor. Now, the other level that we have is the strategic level. So as you arrive on scene initially, uh, you're given these orders, and you're the one that's that's ordering somebody to throw a ground ladder or making the order for somebody else to be a, a division leader on another floor. So with any of these structures, 
the command portion is centralized, meaning the decisions are made by one person at the top of this. And again, this works well on scene and in the uh, heat of battle, so to speak. In larger organizations or behind the scenes, sometimes the span of controls uh, can be exceeded unless there is a clear delegation of authority and, uh, and accountability for decisions. Now, this theoretically from the surface, absolutely enhances the idea of, of people being accountable for their decisions because the decisions are almost always centralized. You can tell where they came from, both um, what, at the level they're occurring and then whatever level it may have come to or that it's going or come from and whatever level it's going to next. So uh, the chief delegates authority to officers to make decisions and implement plans. The officers would then pass that along the chain um, to the line workers, people on the front lines that are uh, really uh, carrying out the mission of the organization. And the chief um, obviously is accountable as well. The chief is accountable to the authority having jurisdiction, again, AHJ. Um, so the chief is accountable to the department, and the chief is certainly accountable to the public. Um, when we talk about more of a decentralized model, and decisions are often made at a lower level, and the effects of those decisions are reported throughout the structure. Now, in something like that to work effectively, the chief really has to ensure that members under, understand the organization's direction and values and goals um, and the decision-making authority that goes along with that. So, um, you know, in, in this manner, you know, committees really work well to make sure that everybody's on the same page and that uh, we have a, a panel that is representative of the organization as a whole, especially as it relates to people who are going to be affected by that. Because once we um, are able to uh, identify where we need to go, we need to make sure that we're, we're using the proper delegation of authority and the process, that's really the process of providing our peers with authority, direction, and the resources that they need. Now, oftentimes the decision to delegate can be difficult, and the officer may worry that the task either won't be completed in, in a manner that meets the organizational needs, organizational needs, or they may not know how to effectively delegate something in general, uh, which both scenarios obviously don't equal a good outcome. Now, those concerns can be alleviated through a training program that builds knowledge and skills and abilities and trust. Um, because the company officer must really ensure that the assigned employee is capable of doing that job. And in an instance where somebody maybe isn't fully capable, that's okay because that provides an opportunity. Uh, we have a lot of incredibly intelligent people, and same with other departments. For example, Metro Airport, uh, what a phenomenal organization, lots of talent all the way around. Um, and it's important to help build that knowledge and skill set and confidence because as we talk so much this job is a balance of confidence and competence. Now, um, authority and responsibility go hand in hand, and it's important um, to understand that because to whom much is given, much is expected. So delegation must be accompanied with a couple of things. One, the appropriate authority, and two, the trust that the individual will achieve the desired results using the proper methods. Now, whenever we're assigning a task, as, as an officer, we should describe the task and its relationship to the overall goal or objective. So we're giving people the big picture view. 
we're starting with the end in mind. And now we know where we're working to. So as we plot out our map and plot out our course, we know the places um, that we should visit along the way, so to speak, to make sure that we reach our, our intended destination. And part of that is identifying our available resources. Again, uh, being an organization that has a lot, of, a lot of really, really bright people and great resources, if we can identify those ahead of time, we know how to make this work. Um, and we know that what we have is representative of the group. So now we just have to identify our time and our safety constraints uh, that may apply to the situation. Are there deadlines? Are there limitations based off of uh, the resources that we have at our disposal or the resources that we don't have at our disposal um, in a way that we can, can work towards or work through any of those bar barriers? So the, uh, the next step is... Uh, something that's really important, and that is unity of, of command. Now, unity of command is something that we should all be excited about, right? And unity of command states that each subordinate must only have one supervisor, meaning it's, it's easy to go from one level to the next, and there's not um, this organization that creates so much confusion that, one, the firefighter doesn't know where to go, but, two that the, the officer or supervisor has no idea um, exactly who they are responsible for. Now, of course, there's a lot of uh, possibilities in terms of problems if, if an employee is required to report to more than one supervisor. Um, you know, the employee follows the last order received without performing a previous order, meaning the first assignment is incomplete, or the supervisor who ordered it thinks the supervisor thinks the, the task has been finished, but really it hasn't. Um, or an employee executes tasks poorly while trying to do two, which may very well be conflicting tasks at once. Um, so, in that instance, basically the supervisors can end up where they are being played against one another unintentionally or intentionally sometimes, and neither supervisor knows what the employee is really doing. And uh, as a result, and oftentimes out of frustration, the employee may do little or no work. And I know we talk about this as a as a standard uh, question in an oral board, but if you're given you know, two or more conflicting orders at the same time, what should you do? But uh, in that instance, what happens is the employee becomes extremely frustrated while attempting to follow conflicting orders. And at some point, it's a tune-in or tune-out concept and, uh, you know, oftentimes people tune out because it's not worth the hassle of fighting the system, you know, to uh, accomplish something that may be a, a small project. And as you can imagine, that lives with people. So when we violate it, uh, as we just discussed, it leads to confusion and frustration. Now, when we provide the adequate direction and the needed direction, then we're building that accountability and we're allowing our people to be more productive and more efficient and more involved. And that really de develops that, that, uh, that sense of pride and sense of ownership. So um, as, as we move on into the chain of command and, uh, you know, working on different projects and different assignments, it's, um, it's important to realize that sometimes uh, the chain of command is not followed uh, from step to step, both up or down, but rather we take a shortcut, and that's called sidestepping. So sidestepping, if you can picture the 
the, the standard organizational chart. And we have the chief, and then we have operations, we have battalion chief, captain, lieutenant, and the firefighters. So sidestepping can work both ways. So a firefighter may have an idea, and then the firefighter, uh, through various uh, reasons, perhaps it's the their relationship with the lieutenant, captain, or battalion chief, and they believe one of those individuals to be a barrier to whatever they may be working on, or maybe they don't trust that the information will be passed on as it should be passed on, or maybe it's completely unintentional and it just comes up uh, as a water cooler or a coffee pot conversation, and before you know it, the firefighter convinces the chief that this is what we need to do, and as a result, the lieutenant, captain, and battalion chief are left kind of uh, in the dark on that, and obviously you can imagine the, the frustration that would ensue in that scenario, but it's also important to understand that it can work in reverse, uh, whether it's the chief or the battalion chief, and they have an idea, and for whatever reason, it ends up going to the firefighters first. Again, the people who kind of suffer or, or pay the price in this one is uh, is the the middle of the organization. So our company officers, and now they're the ones who are struggling uh, to catch up because these decisions are made without their input uh, or really without even them knowing that this was something that was going on. So um, that would be a good example. And, you know, what we used in the class for this one was we used the hose tower and sticking with that pyramid analogy that the strongest steps, the strongest blocks need to be on the bottom, we basically selected four people. And those four people played a few different roles. So the first person was the chief, and the chief stayed on the ground. So we were getting things started on the ground level, bottom up, just like we talk about. And uh, the next level up on the hose tower, so at the first landing, was the person who was the battalion chief. And above the battalion chief was a uh, lieutenant or captain, so a company officer. And on the roof of the hose tower was the firefighter. So uh, the firefighter was was focused on the task that they were performing. The chief was focused on leading or implementing a new system. Now, uh, the one that we used for the, the purpose of the class was the rescue task force. So on the ground level, we thought of a few things. Why, when, and how are we going to implement a rescue task force. Now the why is pretty simple. Um, the when is also pretty simple as, as soon as we possibly can. And the how involved training and equipment and things of that nature. Now the scenario that we gave the, the person playing the role of the chief in this um, exercise was that they know the firefighter on top isn't fully in support with their idea. And there is no real uh, basically barrier between them and the firefighter standing on the top. And a part of this exercise was resisting the urge to just casually uh, call out to the firefighter on top of the roof and explain to him what was going on. Um, the point of this exercise was to respect the chain of command and to touch base with the battalion chiefs. The battalion chiefs then passed that on to the company officers, and they carried that message up to the people who needed it, being the firefighter on the roof. And by the time I got to the firefighter on the roof, it was already scrubbed so to speak, by, uh, by people with legitimate uh, knowledge of the situation and, uh, and different education and training and experience that helped to make sure we were getting the right information. So uh, at the top of, of the host tower there, the firefighter was then asked to convey the message back to the group to see if the message had survived, and in all three cases it did. 
Um, so that was that was a little bit of an exercise to identify that when we want to get something going, it takes a little bit of work to do so. With that being said, um, there are also times where it is good to just touch base with everybody, whether it's at the kitchen table or it's in the training room. Uh, you know, the chief, the battalion chief, whoever that may be. Uh, there are certain things where people want to hear straight from the source, and there are certain things where it's so sensitive in nature that it needs to come straight from the source. So those are those are things to keep in mind with regards to the chain of command and the importance of avoiding sidestepping. Now, when the chain of command works as it's supposed to, that's called functional supervision. And functional supervision is the organizational principle that allows workers to report to more than one supervisor. Um, and this, this is specific to something that may involve a committee or a special project or assignment, and, uh, and that could be helpful to alleviate some of that red tape or bureaucracy that may otherwise exist uh, in a more traditional uh, manner. So um, with that, you know, one of the things that, that we talk about and that we used in the class is the example of our operations manual. So we wanted the operations manual to be representative of the organization. We did not want sidestepping. We also didn't um, want to do everything from a top-down, so to speak, way with little to no consideration um, given by the people who are really the uh, the heartbeat of the organization, the ones that are doing the work, and uh, and again carrying the flag for the fire department. So. The way we did this to avoid sidestepping is we made sure we picked a member from each shift. So that was number one. That means three people. And we wanted those three people to be representative of the organization. So we wanted, of those three people, three different roles. We wanted a firefighter, a company officer, and a shift commander. So that's why the formula is what it is. And then we wanted that message to be consistent and distributed accordingly. So we uh, attached the training coordinator to that as well to make sure that we were doing everything uh, in a manner that facilitated effectiveness and uh, and proficiency, not just one person's agenda or or the shortest, fastest possible way to do something. Um, so, kind of the "if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well" concept. So, uh, that leads us to span of control, and span of control refers to the number of subordinates and/or the number of functions that one individual can effectively supervise at the same times. Or at the same time, rather. So this applies equally to um, supervising the crew members of a single company or of officers of several companies under the incident commander. So uh, it, we can we have a number of ways of subdividing the incident to increase and promote an effective span of control. So with a span of control, um, NIMS, so the National Incident Management System, basically... Um, provides a ratio of one supervisor for every three to seven subordinates. And they suggest that the optimum number is five, somewhere between three and five. That's what we shoot for. Now, there's a lot of variables that can affect the span of control. Uh, one is the ability and the experience of the supervisor. Two is the ability and experience of the subordinates. Uh, three is the nature of the task. Is it an IDLH uh, environment? Is it urgent that they're carried out? Is this a complex operation? Um, at what rate does this need to be performed? And are there similar or dissimilar tasks being performed by others at the same time? 
Also, the availability of our resources. Also, the training level of our resources. Have we already um, identified a clear and concise command structure that we should be working towards? And do we integrate that command structure into the trainings that we do on a day-to-day -day basis? And my hope would be that our answer is yes to all of those questions because we have certainly provided um, or a lot of resources and we've certainly invested a lot of time into developing those things here at our organization. So um, now that we understand span of control, we can talk about division of labor. Division of labor is dividing larger jobs into smaller jobs um, to be assigned to specific individuals or specific uh, groups within the organization. And um, that's done in, in a way that, again, facilitates span of control and prevents um, loss of composure from the incident commander and you know, leads to them being quickly overwhelmed and now we have uh, chaotic, confused, inefficient um, operation with a major communications breakdown. So division of labor is important for assigning responsibility, preventing duplication of effort, and making specific clear-cut assignments. So, um, you know, emergency services, uh, emergency service organizations are, are organized in the three divisions. We have uh, work assignment groups, subgroups, um, and so on, and then we have geographical areas and we have branches. So, very quick NIMS refresher here. The way that we really assign these things and, and what you're responsible for, best practices of NIMS and everything else that we should be taking into, um, in, it, all these things we should keep in mind in the consideration is we have branches. A branch is industry specific. Think of it that way. We have a fire branch, law enforcement branch, hazmat, USAR. Those are industry specific things. And then moving down from branches, we have divisions. A division could be the West Division, East Division, Alpha Division, Charlie Division, Division 1, Division 2, Division 3, Basement, Basement 2. Um, all those things are divisions. And then from there, we go to groups, and groups are functional. And so we could have uh, the ventilation group, theoretically. We could have the fire attack group, theoretically. Now, that's not a way that we operate commonly because we don't have... Uh, you know, this overabundance of resources to do that. But <clears throat> we typically see groups is in more of a specialty situation. Uh, you know, mass casualty, for example, you may have a treatment group, triage group, and transport group. That would make sense. Um, urban search and rescue may have, on a, on a uh, trench rescue, they may have a paneling group, a shoring group, and an entry group. The same with hazmat. They may have a drone group, a robot group, and, uh, you know, some other type of group like air monitoring. So with that being said, that is division of labor. And uh, when, when we're talking about that, all the positions within the organization must be clearly defined for division of labor to be effective. And there's a certain level of cross-training that should be provided so we understand the overlap from the duties to the task level to the tactical level to the strategic level. And that really enables different, comp different uh, companies to work well together. And that should be provided so that personnel are able to perform this variety of tasks that we're asking them to perform with proficiency. So this pretty much sums up uh, Chapter 2, Section 1, which uh, is focused on understanding those very basic concepts as it relates to the organizational structure as a whole. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll be back with more. Thank you for listening to the Hooked on Learning podcast. Until next time, be smart.